0: Our Scripture reading this morning, as you know, comes from that wonderful story in Mark's. If you have your Bible, let's flick back there because you're going to need it uh, in a moment or two. And those watching on our live stream broadcast, if you're watching for the first time Sunday by Sunday when you join us, it would be a good idea if you have your Bible open on your lap as well and can follow along in our study. This is my first Sunday back after being off for probably four or five weeks most of July, in fact. But towards the end of July, uh, Ruth and I had a couple of days in Washington, D.C., and we attended the South Carolina prayer breakfast. And later that morning, I had the overwhelming privilege of being the U.S. Senate chaplain for the day. And the Senate have a chaplain who opened the proceedings in prayer each day, as does the House as well. And that tradition goes back to 1787 with Benjamin Franklin, of all people. The Senate… or the Congress then had come to an impasse, and they had been debating and debating for hours, going nowhere. And he eventually asked, could they suspend the business for the rest of the day and have a chaplain begin the proceedings the following morning? And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And then within two hours, they had resolved the differences in the Second Continental Congress. And so, from that point on, a chaplain has begun the proceedings in prayer. So, I had that enormous privilege. And, of course, when you're praying in the Senate, it is recorded by C-SPAN. And when you stand up to lead in prayer, the President Pro Tem invites you to stand up, which I did. I completed the prayer. Then you are to about turn, stand back a couple of feet give, uh, the flag is there, Pledge of Allegiance takes place, and then you step down off the platform. And C-SPAN cover all of that. In fact, he told me when I was there that about 13 million people tune in each morning to the beginning of the Senate proceedings. And when they broadcast uh, my prayer, this is how it looked. You can see me at the bottom there and the details of who I am. And then above it, it says, report profane or abuse of content. <clears throat> now, I have one or two options here to believe what happened. I am wondering if they simply, that caveat goes out over everything that C-SPAN broadcast. I haven't looked at C-SPAN since then to see if that is the case. But my preferred opinion is this that they could not understand my rich southern accent. And so, just to be safe, just to be safe, that is what they put up. Now, if you're watching from home this morning and you hear any profane or abusive content, C-SPAN want to know. Please be in touch uh, with with them. Now, apart from all of my silliness, we are, as you know, coming to uh, launch a new series this morning called What Do You Believe?, and it looks at faith in culture, and let me explain what's going to happen over the next eight or nine Sunday mornings together. We will be exploring and navigating our way around some of the cultural landmines and hot topics of our day. We will touch on issues of human sexuality, abortion, sexual identity, and marriage. We will also wrestle with how we respond as Christians to a society shaped by 24-hour news cycles, social media feeds, and the subtle but often unseen undercurrents of ideas, values, cultural artifacts, issues, institutions, and structures. So all of that we'll be dealing with over the next eight or nine weeks, but this morning I wanted to Uh, Begin by following up where we left off during March and excuse me during May or April and May, and some of you will remember this. We spent April and May looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and the great refrain running through that well-known chapter was by faith, Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith. Jacob. And so, that phrase, by faith, ran throughout those eight or nine weeks of study. And this morning, as we begin this new series saying, now, how do you live out your faith in a 21st century cultural context? I wanted to pause and look at what is the character and nature of genuine faith when we talk about faith, what do we mean by that? When we describe an individual as a man or a woman of faith, what does that actually mean? And so, this morning, I wanted to start with Mark chapter 5 at verse 21. And one of the fascinating points of this is that you have two developing stories within a single narrative. That is typical of Mark. If you look at Mark chapter 1, there are seven or eight major incidents in the life of Jesus all crammed into Mark chapter 1. In fact, Matthew and Luke take four chapters to describe what Mark packs into chapter 1, and Mark often does that. He wants his readers to understand exactly what is taking place, and he crams as much information as he can into a single what's called pericope. Now, Donald English, a very fine New Testament scholar describing Mark's gospel, says this, it has become increasingly clear that the central theme emerging from Mark's gospel is the nature of true faith. Parables, miracles, and exorcisms do not ensure it. Religious education and background does not automatically Discover it. Family ties are not enough to create it. Demons in a curious way know its basis and oppose it. People in deepest need and desperation seem to find it by a variety of roots. And that's exactly what's happening here when we come to Mark chapter five. And so let me ask you to use your imagination this morning. I want you to envisage that you are right there that morning when Jesus crosses the lake by boat. He gets off at the other side. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, sees him and runs to him. Now, imagine you are standing on the edge of the crowd watching all of this take place. And the fascinating thing is this that not only have you two stories in one narrative, not only do you have one male, one female, not only do you have Jairus, the synagogue ruler, a leader in his community, spiritually speaking, someone who was instantly recognizable, but you also have this lady who is considered unclean and would not be able to go to the synagogue or go to the temple in Jerusalem. And incidentally, she's been ill for 12 years, and everyone around her would be holding her at arm's length, thinking she must be contagious. And incidentally, there must be some kind of hidden sin in her life. Otherwise, God would have healed her long before now. And for this poor lady, please grasp what's happening. Not only is she hemorrhaging inside, but she would have a skin disease because of a lack of vitamins and minerals in her system. Her immune system would be low. She'd be open to infection. She would have a lack of energy, lethargic. And for 12 years, the passage tells us, she spent all she had trying to get better, and in fact she grew worse. And here is Jairus, rushing to Jesus, falling at his feet, and saying, Master, my daughter is dying. Now, I suspect any adult here in the sanctuary will understand the overwhelming anguish and the anxiety and the pain of what Jairus is going through. And the other interesting dynamic is this, and it's not immediately recognizable from the passage, but back in Mark chapter 3, we read these words, they had decided to kill him. That was the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers of the synagogue, had already decided to take his life. But Jairus is in such pain, is frantic with worry, None of that matters to him. He rushes to Jesus, falls at his feet, and the passage says, and he pleaded with him. My daughter is dying. This is an emergency. It's immediate. It's happening right there and then. And Jesus naturally says, of course, how can I help? And the crowd start moving towards Jairus' home until Jesus stops it all. Now, here's my question. Why on earth would he stop? Why does he stand still? Why does he look around and say, excuse me, who touched me? Now, imagine you are leaving worship this morning, and you're trying to go out through the main door or this side door, which we call a choir door, and lots of people are going out. Someone's going to brush up against you, knock against your bag, be right behind you, You think nothing of it. But Jesus stops and stops everything and says, Who touched me? Now, why doesn't he simply look heavenwards and say, Father, thank you for healing this lady and move on? What is so important that he has to stop everything to attend to this lady? And please remember a 12 year old is dying so why does Jesus stop? Why does he make this lady who simply thinks, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, that's all. I'm not asking for anything wonderful or spectacular. If only I can catch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed. And Jesus stops, and he makes her step out from the crowd. She was hoping for anonymity. She was hoping for secrecy. And he says, no, step out. Now, why does he put her in that position? Because what's about to take place is crucially important for this lady. And what he's saying to her is this, that it's not the hem of my garment. It's not my clothes that have healed you. Please understand that faith is so much richer and deeper and fuller than a garment, than a hem of a garment. Please understand that what's happening to you physically is a reflection of what's happening to you spiritually. Because not only is she transformed physically, but she's transformed heart, mind, and soul. She is dealt with in her totality. And the Gospels are absolutely crystal clear on this issue. That genuine faith is not about the amount of your faith or extent of your faith. Rather, it's about the object of your faith. It's not the garment, but Jesus Himself that's where faith belongs, that's where trust is exercised, that's why you can have full confidence and trust in Him, because He transforms, He renews, He refreshes. He pulls you into intimacy with God. He grants to you the indwelling power of His Holy Spirit to strengthen you and refine you and build you up and grow in your faith. That's what's going on here. It's not the clothes. It's Christ Himself. And that's why He calls her out. He wants to explain to her And that's why when she tells him, and do you notice what the passage says? The whole truth. He then says, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Now, while all of this is going on over here, please remember who is standing here watching Jairus is watching all of this unfold, and two servants come from his house, and I imagine they quietly pulled him by the elbow, turned him round, away privately, so they would say to him, your daughter is dead. Is it possible to hear any more devastating news? And then they say, why bother the teacher anymore? And then, typical of Mark, and Mark's gospel gives us little glimmers into an unfolding drama that not all of the other gospel writers give us. And then we read these incredible words that I don't think you find anywhere else ignoring what they said. Can you think of another place in the gospel where Jesus ignores someone? ignoring what they said. He didn't pay any attention to it. He was conscious of it, of course, he heard them say it. But ignoring what they said, he looks at Jairus and says what? Do not be afraid. Just believe. Do not be afraid. Just believe. Trust me, I've got it. And here was Jairus, as we said earlier, the synagogue ruler, instantly recognizable, a leader in his community, a man who had conducted services in the synagogue multiple times, probably even in the temple in Jerusalem. And was all of that nothing but outward observance? Was it simply attendance at religious ritual? Because now came the point of decision. And for every one of us, there will come a time where he will back us into a corner and ask us, what do you believe? Do you trust me? Have you confidence that I can handle this? Or are you out there trying to resolve it in your own strength? And Jairus had a decision to make. What was he going to do? This huge crowd was watching. What was it that would determine his future? What was it that would define him? Was he to be a man of faith or not? And a question this Sunday morning for each of us whether we're sitting there in the congregation, here in the choir, whether we're watching by live stream or not, the question is this, what do you believe? Can you trust Him entirely? Is your confidence in Him, or is it in church attendance, ritual observance, religious upbringing? My parents brought me Or is there for you a living relationship with Him that is growing and blossoming? Are there moments when you pray where you can't wait to interact with Him and pray again? And when you open up His Word, it seems that He speaks to you from the pages of it, and you intentionally slow down each day to spend time with Him. Because for you, holiness, purity, character, behavior, moral and social issues matter because you want to live out your faith day by day by day. And there comes a point where you need to decide who you are and what your future holds. And let me please go out in a little limb here this morning and say this that regardless of what you are facing this morning, regardless of how painful, how debilitating and crippling it has been, please hear God's word for you this morning. Do not be afraid just believe. He's got you. And then Mark, in his typical fashion, says Jesus would not let the crowd come with him, but only Peter, James, and John, and Jairus, along with the servants. And when they get to the, Jairus' home, what happens? He faces another challenge. It is pretty clear the daughter is, in fact, dead. And Jairus could have turned around and said, Master, forgive me, please. I was hoping beyond hope. I really was hoping I had misheard the servants. She's dead. I need to go and be with my wife. Please forgive me. But he doesn't. He stands firm in his newfound faith. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's asleep. And then you read those dreadful words I highlighted earlier, and they laughed at him. And then, typical of Mark again, I think writing with his tongue firmly in his cheek, I can see him smiling as he writes it. Then he put them all out of the house and took Peter, James, John, along with them into where the girl was, takes her by the hand, speaks to her in Aramaic, the language her parents would have used. Talitha, kum, I say to you, get up. And there was the call of God with instant regenerative power that breathes life into this dead wee girl and brings her back to the astonishment for parents. There's faith at work. Not the amount of your faith. Not that you have already have it worked out, but to trust He already has. And He's got you and will not let you go. Even at the moment when it seems darkest and bleakest, He still has you. Do not be afraid. Just believe. And incidentally, Jesus didn't act on the basis of the faith of the wee girl. She was dead. She didn't even know she was dead. She didn't know He was there. She had no idea that her father had stepped out in faith and trust, giving all of his life over to Christ. And this Sunday morning, you have a decision to make what will define your future? Who will determine who you are? Are you that man or woman of genuine faith in a relationship with Him, growing and developing? Sure, it's not great faith. Do you understand it all? Probably not. But it's not the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters. Whatever you are facing this week, however bad, however difficult, however painful, you need to come back day by day by day and read this passage again and hear the words of your Savior, do not be afraid, just believe. He's got you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning, and thank you that not only do you love us eternally, but you walk with us each day, and you strengthen us and grant to us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, and for all of this, we thank you. Father, we freely confess that there are moments in this past week when we have wandered from You. We have marginalized and minimized Your influence in our lives. But Father, from this point on, as one congregation, we say to You this day, that as for us, we will trust You for all that is to come. Thank You for Your love for us.